to episode 195 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 12th of September 2022. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. All right, mate. (laughs) (laughs) What the fuck was that? I will have been in Glasgow this weekend, don't you know? (laughs) I I honestly thought that was Scouse. Anyway, Graham? Happy bank holiday. (laughs) (laughs) And Will? Hello. Yeah, it will be a bank holiday when this comes out. It will be the day I'm trying to get back from Glasgow to Dublin. Who knows how that will (laughs) go? The shops are all going to be shut. The pubs are all going to be shut. Anyway, don't make light of such serious, serious things. Sorry. But to distract ourselves from this, this horribly sad day, let's talk about our discoveries. Will, what is Navidrome? Previously on Discoveries, you would have learned how I got my audiobook out of Audible and turned into uh, an MP3 on M4A or whatever it is that you want, which is all well and good, but I do not want to carry something like, oh, I don't know, seven or eight gigs worth of audio. Uh, it's quite a lengthy tome uh, around on my phone. Like My phone storage is very expensive. Cloud storage is very cheap, and my data plan on my phone is also very cheap. And so what I want to do is store it in the cloud and stream it to my phone like you would do with a Spotify or one of those sorts of things and just listen to it on the device that I'm using wherever it is that I am. So I want to be able to listen to this on my phone without having to upload it to some cloud provider and then pay for an app. That's the main driver for me. And ideally, I want it to be open source and possibly self-hosted, but I'd rather not. So I looked around at what can provide me the option of uploading specifically music or audio files and has an app that isn't terrible and will allow me to stream it to whatever device that is that I'm using. And they are few and far between. I went around a bit of a circuitous loop trying to find something that would do exactly what I wanted, and in the end settled on Navidrome. Navidrome is a subsonic-compatible hosting solution. You can shove all of your music on there. It's optimized to work with MP3s and FLACs and uh, M4As and all that sort of thing. It's very lightweight. It does transcoding on the fly as well, so you don't necessarily need a phone that can stream or or rather play in hardware or or software, it will transcode into the formats that your device can support. Uh, It supports the subsonic API, which means that there are actually quite a good selection of clients on iOS and on Android. It's open source, and it also has a web interface which looks suspiciously like Spotify. So uh, all boxes were ticked. I'm very happy with it. It's working nicely. Check it out. And there's about six subsonic clients in F-Droid alone. Wow. Do you know of any that can download music for a local cache? Because it's something I often need, because there's no data here. So if I want to listen to something, I need to. Mm. I don't know if it's possible. I, I think it is absolutely possible, because it is ultimately a file transfer API. I think that's entirely up to the client application. Yeah. I haven't used enough of them to say if it's possible, but I'm just poking around now trying to find out. Well, I'm looking at one here. Ultrasonic in F-Droids uh, says it has a offline mode available as well. There we go. Sweet. That's something that Jellyfin, which does this kind of streaming from self-hosted server, um, can't do, or I've not been able to find a way of doing it. Just take some stuff offline easily without just copying the files to your phone. Oh, that's disappointing. That seems like something that Jellyfin should be able to do. But uh, Neverdrive sounds really cool. I'll have to check it out. So, Graham, what is IMHEX? 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 I, yeah, I don't know how it's pronounced either. So 
It's a hex editor. A hex editor, for people who might not know, normally allows you to edit binary files without knowing anything about the context of the, of the binary file. It could be an executable, it could be an image, it could be a text file. There are loads of hex editors for Linux, as you might expect for a kind of nerdy, geeky operating system. I've loved them. Just I'm useless at them. I can't do anything actually productive with them other than, you know, change high scores to say my name. <laughs> <laughs> Which actually, I started using them with an action replay on the Amiga 500 because the action replay was this thing where you could kind of press a button and it would freeze the entire state of the machine. And then you could go in with a, it included a hex editor and also a disassembler. So you could see the assembly language of the of the code that was running if it happened to be an executable. So that is something that Imhex also does. Not only is it a hex editor, it's a kind of really powerful search and pattern matcher with a disassembler for all the main architectures, ARM and x86. So not only can you do the normal hex and binary editing, which you can do, you can use this search to highlight bits. If you know, for example, what the code is for, I'm going to stick with games, but you might know, you can watch a piece of memory to see if it changes. You can look for a specific string and get it to highlight itself in the editor. And then disassembling it means that you can see the kind of the assembly language instructions that are run. It can also disassemble to see and other things like that if, if it's got the links to the dev libraries. And you can change things that way. It does a lot more as well. It's Considering hex editors are really simple, usually you can run them on the command line and you just see this whole page of hexadecimal, which is a great way of representing the bytes. It's more like an IDE for hacking and disassembling and for reverse engineering when it calls itself a hex editor for reverse engineers. 99 lives coming this way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Have you actually used it for anything other than just messing around with games, though? So I haven't actually messed around with games. I actually have used it for a few practical things. I've used it for looking for text in a binary file, in an executable. I've also used it to try and find the magic bytes in a tar archive that I've not been able to untar properly. So you can see where like file headers start, or even if the, if an image file is in there, it or can search for magic bytes automatically. These are the kind of things that come, the first few bytes of a file often uh, with common formats will include the pattern that remains the same across any binary. So, you know, whether it's a JPEG or a music file or an executable, or what kind of executable it is, whether it's an ELF. And so I have used it for that. Nothing too complicated. I have used it for a little bit of reverse engineering when I've wanted to see whether it was branching off to a library. Um, so just very light usage. But if you're going to have a hex editor installed for simple tasks, then at least you've got this on hand if you need to do other more complicated things. And it's a lot of fun. It reminds me of just messing around with low-level hardware when you used to be able to understand everything about that hardware. Phelim, you've been playing around with Steam Play, where you uh, stream Steam games around your LAN. Yeah, assuming that's what that's called. I went looking to try and find out what the proper name was, but then I found Remote Play, but that's not what it is. So... Essentially, I've got a powerful computer and my son has a terrible laptop from at least a decade ago, if not 13 years, which is what I think it is. And he is able to play games on my machine and I can either play with him up there in his machine or down here. We're seeing a split screen game at that point. It's not like a network game, but it allows him to actually play stuff up there 
And it's a bit of a laugh and it's quite cool. Uh, the only thing that I wish it could do is it could go into the background and therefore he could use it on my machine while I was actually doing some work and then he could use it whenever he needs to. But alas, it does not do that. It takes over and it almost acts like a remote desktop. I think you talked about this before, Graham. Uh, you've actually used it like that. I have, yeah. I think it's called, well, it, it used to be called Steam Link because there's a Steam Link app for the Raspberry Pi that you can do the same thing. But I love gaming like this because my pc's in here in the office and i'd much prefer playing games in the living room it's definitely a cool way for that like i just i'd obviously heard about it it happened a long time ago it's not anything new but i finally gave it a try out and yeah it works really well it's quite it's quite good fun and the best part is it's completely open source isn't it fair name it is yeah totally yeah <laughs> anyway carry on i'm i'm very pragmatic as we all know <laughs> yeah you're known for that yeah games yeah. is different Something I've mentioned like this is Moonlight, which I think is better than Steam Link because it unlocks more resolutions and frame rates and also even HDR if your hardware can support it. And while the client is fully open source, the back end relied on NVIDIA hardware, but I think even that has now been kind of decoupled and reverse engineered and re-implemented for like AMD and NVIDIA hardware and Intel, which is another option for remote playing games on other hardware. Ah, cool. Is that going to work as well as the official way though? Yeah, it works better. Honestly, it does work better. It's much it's much lighter and better performing. I've so I can play the game side by side. I've run this on an old Steam Link box, the old Valve hardware. Oh wow. And you can install Moonlight on that. And if you run them on the same hardware, Moonlight performs better. Mm, sounds like you should be checking that one out then, Fanny. It does indeed, yeah. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. Traditional endpoint security tools can make your workplace feel like a surveillance state turn users and the IT team into adversaries, and ultimately drive your employees to work on unsecured personal devices. It doesn't have to be this way. Collide is a device security solution built around honest security. Their philosophy is that employees aren't your biggest security risk, they're your biggest allies, and your relationship with them should be based on transparency and informed consent. Collide works by notifying your employees of security issues via Slack and giving them step-by-step instructions on how to resolve them themselves. For IT and security teams, Collide provides the right level of visibility for Mac, Windows, and Linux devices. It can answer questions about your fleet's security that traditional MDMs can't. You can meet your security goals without compromising your values. Visit collide.com slash late night Linux to find out how. If you follow that link, they'll hook you up with a goodie bag just for activating a free trial. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash late night Linux. Well, I've got something to break your brain, Phelan. So, UTM running Windows 10 on an M1 iPad Pro. You just said a load of numbers and letters I don't understand. <laughs> right, so let me break that down. UTM is a QMU-based virtual machine manager for macOS, I thought, seemingly iPadOS as well now, that is totally open source. So this is some open source software, right, that allows you to run Windows 10 on a fancy M1 iPad Pro. Truly, we are living in the future. Yeah. Great. It's fucking fast. Yeah, it's a very fast piece of hardware, is the bottom line. And uh, in this YouTube video, they install Geekbench and run it, and the scores that they get are roughly equivalent to my 9600K i5, and it's faster on the single-threaded. And that is virtualized Windows on top of a fucking iPad. So that just tells you, A, how good the hardware is, and B, how good UTM is. I don't know, it's, it's a 
free software open source win on an otherwise horribly proprietary set of hardware and software. UTM has been around for quite a long time, and I thought it had been taken down from Apple's App Store. Uh, I'm not sure, actually, because even on the Mac, I think you have to just go to the website and download it. I don't think it's in the uh, the App Store there, so it wouldn't surprise me if this had to be sideloaded. Right. What happens when they stop allowing you to do that, though? That's the problem. Oh, uh, you're always with this. <laughs> yes, I am. I'm Debbie Downer, so just live with it. <laughs> Glass half full, man. Glass half full. Come on. I think if you buy an iPad in order to run Windows 10 on it in the first place, then <laughs> that's a failing strategy. <laughs> the white ghost should just turn up at your door as a free service. I straight jacket. Yeah, but if you have an iPad Pro for iPad type things, and then you want to do this for a bit of a laugh, then that's cool. Mm. Like, yeah, I often find I want to spend a bit of a laugh installing Windows 10. Well, you know, it's just to, just to see if you could do it sort of thing. <sighs> And uh, I, yeah, I think that's cool. It's something that I would do if I had one. I've long been interested in the sort of challenges that the Gadget Show used to do about 10 years ago, where they would try and do a day's work on you know, a mobile phone or an iPad. And these days, you could do that on an iPad. There's nothing you can't do. You could be editing videos. You could be rendering the latest Disney movie on this hardware. It's absolutely amazing. I don't know about the latest Disney movie, but maybe a, a little uh, web short or something. To be honest, just typing a message on my touchscreen is enough to make me want to go down to the PC and type it on the keyboard and go back to bed. Uh, that's what Bluetooth peripherals are for, Phantom. <sighs> I have tried writing on an iPad um, with the keyboard, the Apple keyboard, and I'd really tried properly with Scrivener, which is a writing app. And in the end, after a couple of months, I just got too frustrated with the limitations of it. It's so slow, I find. I just needed a desktop, yeah. It's when your thought process is being slowed up by the input method, mm. I find it, it's just so painful. That's yeah. why I don't think keyboards are ever going away, because there's just nothing else that seems to be quick enough. Well, I used a physical keyboard, but even then I kept hitting some secret emoji button. <laughs> <laughs> it was the best of times. It was the turd symbol of times. <laughs> I might have talked about this ages ago because I was all also trying to use a remote desktop to get a Linux session in there, and I was running a terminal on there as well. Ultimately, it just got too deeply frustrating. On to a bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com support. And remember, for $10 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And that includes this show, Linux Downtime, and Linux After Dark. And do check those shows out. They're great. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. Let's do some feedback then. Gary wrote in to say, in episode 191, you were all saying about how Chrome OS Flex gave enterprise remote admin and how that has always been lacking in Linux. I thought Ubuntu Landscape was Canonical's effort, or was that just software updates and not much else? Maybe Will and Graham can elaborate on that a little. Well, I can elaborate for what I know, which isn't very much. Landscape, I think, saved information about what particular packages, what version they were on, what was installed. I don't think it did much around login control and user control and that sort of thing, but I may well be very wrong. I don't know. Was it more akin to Ansible? Yeah, I think so. I think that was really the driving force behind Landscape was more about application control, package control, build 
environment control than it was about specific user abilities. And here's a fun fact for you. This show was almost called Linux Landscape. But then when looking around, we found that, oh, Canonical have got this thing called Landscape, so we probably shouldn't call it that. And then we thought of Late Night Linux instead. Much better. Yes, ultimately much better. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account, and you'll get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. Let's talk about AI and specifically AI artwork. Now, this isn't really Linux or open source to a large extent, but the bottom line is we had this discussion off air last time we recorded, and uh, it was a great opportunity to troll fail him off air. <laughs> so I thought, let's do it on air this time. Sure, might as well, like. Yeah, exactly. It's the reason I'm on medication, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there was an art competition. And one of the categories was digital art. And someone used Midjourney, which is one of those things where you type in what you want it to produce and the AI just spits out a cool photo for you. And a fella entered with one of them that he had photoshopped a little bit and won the competition. And that got a lot of people very, very angry. As it should. As it shouldn't, as we had this debate. So, Phelim, you don't believe that artwork created using AI counts as art because you are living in the past. No, because it has no soul. Nobody could explain why they drew it. Therefore, it's an art. And if you tell me, oh, well, somebody could draw a black cube on a canvas and just do that and make it as art, equally, I don't think that's art either. I'd just like to point that out or... Yeah, the tin of beans thing, if you actually painted it, maybe. I don't know. Art is very subjective, as we made in our offline argument, but I still think if you haven't got a person behind it who can tell you why they drew it, then I think it's bollocks is what that is. What if you cut a cow in half and uh, stick it in a tank? Is that art? No, I'd say that's more uh, some sort of preservation system. It's not art, though. All right, what if you get a uh, rhino and turn it upside down and stick it on the wall? You're just a shit builder is what you are then. Right, okay. And uh, if you have an unmade bed? No, not art. It just isn't. I see. Well, your answers to those questions render your opinions on art invalid, Phelim, I'm afraid. Because it's been about 20-odd years, maybe 30 years since some of that was deemed art. So this shit is art. You're just wrong. I think Phelim subscribes to the Homer Simpson school of art appreciation, which is the things look like the things they look like. Mm. But I don't even mind abstract stuff. It just, there has to be an abstract from who it came. And a, a computer can't tell you what it was thinking when it drew it or why it drew it. Therefore, it isn't art because it's just an algorithm and that is not art. I think perhaps I'm one or two rungs up the ladder from you. I, I think that the the examples that Joe gave 
can be art. But I think that, that Phelim's right, that it needs to have some higher thought behind it than just some throw enough shit and some of it sticks approach that AI has taken to learn to make art, which somebody else considers to be a picture of a thing. So I think that it does need a, a guiding hand behind it. And I don't think that guiding hand can be a soulless computer. I think it has to be a human being. But that's the whole point that a human being does guide the hand of the AI. It depends what you type in. No, it doesn't. A fucking paragraph is not fucking you doing. That's you giving a brief. Look, I'm sorry, Phelim and Will, you're completely wrong. <laughs> no, we're not. Phelim, you said you wanted an artist to explain some meaning behind art. That's not how art works. Art only exists in the person that derives some kind of anything out of it. That's all art is. Art is nothing. If, for example, the human race is completely destroyed and all that's left is our art, whether it's generated by AI or generated by humans, are you saying that therefore art no longer exists? Stonehenge isn't art because we don't know its meaning. No, it's what you take from it. And if you take something from some AI-generated art, that's art. If you take something from a blank canvas, that's art. If you take something from a sine wave or four minutes and 33 of silence, that's all art. Art exists totally in the eye of the beholder. No, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, my definition of art that I've always subscribed to is something that provokes an emotional reaction in others. Oh, fuck off. Look, my dog can shite in the car, but that'll promote a, a reaction from me. That is not a fucking piece of art. That is a shit in the middle of the rug. For fuck's sake. What shape was it in? Shape of Jesus? Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Look, I obviously realised that some of the examples you gave of making beds or not or whatever the fuck is classed as art, but at least there's a human behind them. There's a story there. There's something went into it. If you, you take know? from a different meaning, that's fine. How do you know there's a human behind them? Well, uh, the bed didn't unmake itself. Yeah, but maybe there isn't. Maybe somebody's copying exactly some what something else created. But a person still looked at it, no. pointed at it and went, oh, that gives something in me. I'm going to put that on. I'm now going to put it on a, a gallery or whatever. Maybe someone in a painting farm has created it for the artist and the artist is passing them off as their own. Does that mean that if that's no longer true, you can say, no, that's not art? I reckon if even somebody in a painting farm was painting something, they'd put something of their own into it because we can't help but add our own stuff. A computer is just churning through it. And to give people the power to write like a paragraph and then they go, I am, I am the greatest artist ever. It's like, no, you've just written a description. It's a brief. No, they are. Because all artists are using tools. Even the artists in the caves in France who were spitting paint onto through a straw onto the walls, they were using tools. They weren't scratching it out with their eyeballs. No, and that's fine. You can use it, but I don't think AI, that far beyond crosses the point of where it's a tool because that's like saying, okay, take this as a, a sort of made-up argument. If I go to an artist and say, I want you to draw me a picture of a scene and it's going to have a sunset and it's going to have a spaceship... I can't put that in a gallery and say, I drew it. Because you know what? I didn't. No, you commissioned it. Yeah, that's just funding the artist. And if 
funding the artist is the only thing that means i better like get a few vms on the go and then i can claim to be an artist too because the ai ran on my vm don't you know it's mm. so abstract from the point of it being the piece it's not what it's actually telling you is about art stable diffusion is incredible actually when you play with it and it's all open source and technologically it's incredible it's like a five gig model you can use offline but it's actually questioning what you think of art. It's questioning what art is. And I think that's the right thing. Art in and of itself doesn't really exist other than in what you want as an emotional response. But what happens if somebody is not emotional? What happens if it's a robot that's appreciating art? Is the robot alive? Do robots have emotions? Do androids dream of electric sheep? <laughs> <laughs> you see a turtle at its back. <laughs> but this asks the question, who is the artist in this case? In the cave paintings with the people blowing through straws, the people blowing through the straws were the artists. Because they saw it and they put it on the fucking wall. Indeed. So when the AI generates a picture... The person who told it what to draw is merely the sponsor of that project. The, the AI is the artist in this question. Well, except not, because the AI is a tool, and you have to learn to use that tool. And a lot of the ones that we've all used, the, you know, the, what's now Crayon, uh, what they called Dali Mini or whatever at first, but then they got cease and desisted. That one, you just type in some dumb stuff and it comes up with it. But the more advanced ones, you have to tweak your parameters and you can give weight to certain words. And there is a real skill in teasing out of that AI the art that you want to produce. And therefore, in my mind, it's not that far removed from something like Photoshop or Illustrator or Inkscape or... Please. Oh, you sit in front of that and you describe to yourself the picture you want to draw, then you use the Illustrator to draw it. That's the problem I have with it. It takes the skill out of it. There should be some effort involved in these things. You don't even sound like an old man. You sound like someone from 200, 300 years ago. No, you see, the problem I have is the fact that it is giving people this... It's like the fucking... Oh, what's those programs where they all go up and they think they want to be a rock star and they oh, yeah. sing a song in front of Simon Cowell and then they're like, oh, you're a superstar. They fucking are in their hole. They just were on a TV program. They managed to get picked. It's bollocks. It's it's like the way of skipping through the band practice, the touring in a shitty bus. That's what fucking makes a band. And that's why we have such shit music and why people don't like modern music. The old music is making a resurgence. It's because there's no fucking effort involved in all the new stuff. It's just tiny shitty hooks that people keep fucking going, oh, that was good in that key, and then that sold a lot on that record. Let's nail them together, and that'll be a hit. Yeah, because uh, Stock Aitken and Waterman definitely didn't do anything like that in the <laughs> 80s, 40 fucking years ago. Yeah, but they still had somebody who could sing because they didn't have fucking auto-tune back then, though. That's the that's one of the few remaining bits. Like True. Rick Astley was uh, a great singer, for example. Great dancer, too, though. Yeah. <laughs> It sounds to me, Phelan, that you're describing something more like a religion. You want <laughs> pain and you want suffering. And only through pain and suffering can true art or faith be rendered. And I just think that's completely wrong. It's the wrong side. Art is basically exists purely in the people who look at it or listen to it. And we can't say what is or isn't. And it survives or it doesn't survive based on... We're talking about it, and I think that definitely makes it art, the fact that it's created this kind of response from us. We didn't even mention the people selling prompts, which uh, <sighs> must really troll you. So that's, that's people who 
sell just the few words, the, the the short paragraph with the different weights in it and stuff. Fucking ridiculous. No, fair play to them. You know, I'm not going to buy it. Fair play to them. All right. I think cryptocurrencies are great too, Joe. Well, that's totally <laughs> fucking different. That's totally different. You know what you're buying with it. You know you're buying something that is going to create something cool because someone has spent time tweaking the um, AI, adding different words and different weights to different words and everything, and then they've come up with something that looks cool and you are supporting their efforts in doing so. It's not something that I want to get involved with, but if people want to do it, fair play and fair play to the people who are selling them for a few dollars here and there. Good. I can't wait till they destroy the planet in their quest to burn all this AI natural resources. Well, at least you get some cool photos out of it or drawings or whatever you want. Go to an artist's place and give them a couple of quid to draw something for you. At least that way you've helped a person. But we were talking about this earlier in the fact that only middle class people seemingly can afford to become musicians these days because people without the opportunity or the income can't take the same risks that are required to become good at something. And those kind of elements of wealth and having the luxury to be able to study something, they're just the same as typing in words to, in AI to be able to generate an image. It's, it's the same with being in an incredibly fortunate position 250 years ago if you learned classical music and you wrote classical music, or being Jean-Michel Jarre, who was a famous <laughs> musician father who bought you all the synths in the world, and you happen to be the first person that goes doom, 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 doom. AI is the great leveller, in a way, because it democratises art to anyone. Yeah. And surely that's a good thing. Yeah, uh, except for the people who actually have the skills to do art, in which case, sucks to be those guys, I guess. Well, they're the bourgeois anyway. <laughs> Fuck them. <laughs> well, it's like I said, the old order changeth, yielding place to new. But with that then, we'd better get out of here. We'll be back next week when who knows what we'll be talking about. Probably AI of some sort, or maybe uh, even the new king. Who knows? But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. Bye.